This morning, if uh, you would turn your attention to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, you can find it, of course, in your bulletin on page 8, if you prefer that, or in a real Bible. It's about three-fourths of the way through towards the end of the New Testament, one of those little little letters that's kind of hard to find. And we've been uh, looking at Thessalonians this summer through both of these letters that Paul wrote to his friends in this Greek town in northern Greece. And these are his closing words to these two letters to this young church. Paul has encouraged this young church for their progress in the faith. He has addressed some of the problems that they have, which they certainly do have, and he addresses some of that again here in this passage. And he's also reminded them of a very key theological truth, one that they can't neglect, nor can we. And altogether, Paul gives a picture of what this gospel does. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Finally, brothers, Paul writes, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one, and we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way that I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, we pray that you would be with us this morning. Would you grant to us that we might understand your word? Lord, we recognize, as we always do, that apart from your spirit working among us, that these are merely words to us, but they're more than that because they're your words. We pray that you would make them to shape our lives, to to undo us and to put us back together again as we trust in the righteousness of Jesus by your word as your spirit works. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus will come again. 
four words that should unravel and then redefine and reshape all of life as we know it. Jesus will come again. Praise be to God. Along with the incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection, the return of Christ was absolutely a staple element of Paul's church-planting gospel proclamation. It had to be, at least for a couple of, I think, obvious reasons. One of those is that, well, Jesus taught it. Jesus explained to his disciples that he would, as the Son of God, the Son of Man, come again in power in the clouds in glory. Jesus taught that he would come again. Secondly, Paul had to proclaim it because, well, the kingdom of God requires it. The kingdom of God is at work now. It's present now. You live in the midst of the kingdom of God, and yet it's not yet complete. Apart from the the physical presence of its king, this kingdom is not yet in fullness complete. And so Paul proclaimed that Jesus will come again. He proclaimed it in Thessalonica. He explained to his friends there that as you live your quiet, orderly lives, you wait for God's Son to come from heaven. He reminded them of that several times in his letters to them. And then from Thessalonica, he went to Athens, where famously, among Christians, Paul proclaimed the gospel at the Areopagus, the the place of ideas in the Greek capital there. And God, to those philosophical thinkers, proclaimed that this God that I speak of to you has set a day when he will come and judge the world. And then Paul went on to Corinth, to another Greek city where he saw another church planted and did the work of a planter there. And he proclaimed to them that one day the trumpet will sound and the dead will arise from their tombs, indicating the return of Christ. Paul proclaimed that Jesus will come again. And that theological truth matters. Not just for then, but for now. Why? In John's sermon last week on the previous chapter of this little letter, he explained some of that kind of confusing text about the man of lawlessness and some of the things that must happen before Jesus returns. And he did it in, I think, a very helpful way, explaining that there are, in essence, two messiahs. There are two messiahs. One Messiah has a capital M and is the Messiah that we know and proclaim. The other Messiah comes in quotations. One Messiah is the true one. The other is the false one. One Messiah is all light. The other is all darkness. One Messiah will give you life and the other will give you nothing but deception. There are two Messiahs, and all people, you just have to be a human being to be required to this, all people must pledge allegiance to one or the other Messiah. We all do. It's just a part of our DNA. It's how we're made. You can't avoid it. You have to pledge allegiance to one Messiah or to the other, to the the true one or to the false one. And both of these Messiahs are present and active in the world today. One of them is trying to deceive and to mislead, 
And the other is quietly, patiently, and powerfully building the kingdom of God. The details of your life now reflect the Messiah to whom you've pledged your allegiance. And when the true Messiah comes, the truth about now will be established then. Jesus will come again. Next week, we're going to begin a a new sermon series and a new book of the Bible. We're not going to go very far, just a little bit further towards the end of the Bible. We're going to spend the fall, most of it, looking through the book of Revelation together. And Paul, in many ways, sets us up for it here in these letters to the Thessalonians. And it's kind of odd to me, and maybe you're like me in terms of reading a book. I, I don't know if when you read a book, Have you ever gone back and read the last page before you read the book? I can't do that. It spoils the whole thing. And and I find myself, and I'm reading a novel, trying very hard to not even see the last page. I might flip back just to see how many pages there are, but I want to be very careful not to see the words on the last page because I don't want to know how it ends until I've read what comes before it. In a sense, we're going to spoil it all. We're going to go to the last chapter of the Bible, the last book of it all, and take a look to see what it has to say to us. You've perhaps read the book of Revelation. You've studied it before. I've taught through it on a couple of occasions in our church in the School of Life and Doctrine classes. It's been four or five years since I did that now. But we're going to, we're going to spoil it all in a sense. We're going to go and, and see the last chapter and, and understand what the whole has to say in light of the last chapter. Because Revelation is not given to us to help us parse out the political intrigue of the modern world. That's not why it's there. It is, rather, given to us to show us Jesus and to show us what His gospel does. His gospel that takes a ragtag and cluttered, varied grouping of people and shapes them into his bride to destroy the enemy, to destroy the false Messiah. That's what Revelation is about, and that's, in a sense, what Paul does as he concludes his words to his friends here. He explains that this gospel comes by faithful grace. Paul had come to Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. You remember some of the historical context There you read it in the book of Acts. Paul had come to Thessalonica on the second missionary journey by way of the Roman road from Philippi. He had been in Philippi previously and and saw the beginning of a church there. And and there he met a notable woman, a businesswoman named Lydia. And he, Paul, Silas, Timothy, his friends, they spoke the gospel to Lydia. And the gospel came to Lydia and to her whole household. And the church began. And there... Paul met a slave girl, a young slave girl, who was being used by her captors because she was possessed of a demon who could could tell people things they didn't know, and they used her to make money. And Paul, annoyed by the whole matter, freed her from this demon and was accused by these business owners of disrupting the whole city. And so he was thrown in jail. And in the jail, you know the story, Paul and Silas are singing hymns and the Lord brought an earthquake and and 
tore it all apart and freed them from the jail, but they didn't leave because Paul was a Roman citizen and he wanted his day in court. And the jailer came and appealed to them for help, and the gospel came to the jailer. And then they left and they went to Thessalonica to the synagogue and and proclaimed Jesus there, and the gospel came. And now he's in Corinth writing this letter back to his Thessalonian friends, and the gospel has come again, and he makes a prayer request to them. He says to them, brothers, pray for us. Pray that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. Pray for us, brothers. Pray for us, what? Paul, by all accounts, was a brilliant theologian. Paul was a a religious lawyer. He knew the, the religious law, and he was from what it seems as we read about him and and know about him from history, a very persuasive and strong-willed person. He, He was a good salesman, Paul was. He had good worldly gifts about him. He had argued against the church, even persecuted the church, and now he's asking the church to pray for him. To pray what? That he'll be persuasive? To pray that he'll be a good lawyer, that he'll be able to explain to people clearly what this gospel is all about? No, that's not what he, he asks them to pray at all. Because when, when Saul, the Jew, had met Jesus on the road to Damascus, a paradigm shift occurred for him. And everything changed for him because the gospel of a Jewish carpenter put to death publicly and buried for three days and then supposedly risen from the tomb and elevated back to heaven... That's a difficult thing to persuade someone of. Even if you're a persuasive, lawyerly, strong-willed person like Paul, it requires much more than just being a good salesman. Some of you are good salesmen, I suspect, and probably could, as they say, sell a block of ice to an Eskimo. But Paul, maybe having been like that, knew that this thing that he had to give was unsellable. It required much more than his worldly gift. It required that the word of the Lord speed ahead and be honored. It's a race metaphor that he gives to these Greek athletes in Thessalonica. The race metaphor, the runner who who speeds ahead in the race, the marathon, is the one who receives the honor of those who, who are waiting at the end. And that's the metaphor that Paul gives because the success of the work of Paul is entirely dependent upon the success of the Word of God. I often think on Sunday mornings, it's interesting to consider how at this particular time, on this particular day, throughout this city, there are hundreds of churches, thousands, tens of thousands of Christians gathering together to do exactly what we're doing here. And you spread the circle a bit wider. Across the state, there are thousands of churches, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Christians gathering to do the very thing that we're doing here. The circle goes further on all around the world. Millions of Christians gathering to do what we're doing here, and yet it's all to no avail. If the word doesn't speed ahead, to honor. We've all had certain dreams. They're all kind of staple dreams that every person has to have kind of as a rite of passage of, of growing up. You know, we've all had that dream, well, probably, of falling. You dream that you're falling for some reason. You may not even know why. You fell off of a building or something and you're falling and you wake up and it's a very unsettling dream. Maybe you've had that dream, right? 
Maybe you've had that dream where you show up at school or at work with no clothes on, or maybe in your underwear or something. We've all had that dream. I don't know why those dreams come, but, you know, they, they do. One of those dreams is where you're trying to run, but you can't. Have you ever had that dream? I've had that dream. You're, I mean, you, you have some reason to strain ahead. There's something up there. You've got to get to it, but you can't get there. For some of us, it's not even a dream. It just is reality. That's the kind of thing that Paul is requesting here. He's, he's suggesting, I have to run, but I can't run. Something has to go out ahead of me if this thing is going to work, and it must be by grace. The reason for all of this is the circumstances that Paul is in. You know, he, he adds to his prayer request. He says, pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. Now, remember where he is. He's in Corinth in all likelihood. He's writing from the city of Corinth where he's seeing another church planted. And it's a church that is a disastrous mess. If you've read these letters to the Corinthians, you know that the people in Corinth, not just the citizens, but the the people in the church at Corinth, they had lawsuits among each other against one another. There was unspeakable immorality in the church. They had arguments with each other, boasting about who was better, which apostle was this or that or the other. Paul was in the midst of people who simply didn't believe, people who didn't have faith. But the problem wasn't just in Corinth. The the people of Thessalonica were really just as weak, and Paul knew he'd have to deal with their problems too. There were all kinds of precarious circumstances for Paul's ministry and for the Christian lives of these people. Now, you have to kind of wonder. You bring that all up to the present day, and, and how does all that apply to us right here? You know, the, the, the faithful grace of the gospel coming to us, it has to come by the word of God speeding ahead. I mean, here you have a preacher standing before you whose mind is no better than just a cluttered paper pile. And, and all of us together, you know, we have all of our own distractions and worries and concerns. Apart from this, the word of God going ahead and speeding ahead and, and receiving honor among us because of what God has done by grace, it would all be to no avail. But, but Paul says, the Lord is faithful. The Lord is the faithful one to make this happen. God is at work. He, he goes on. He says, God will establish you, friends. He will guard you against the evil one. That's all good and, and okay, isn't it? We want to receive that. But then he says that the grace that's required for this gospel to stay goes even deeper. We have confidence, he says, in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do what we command. Now, I'm not sure if that's a compliment. We have confidence about you, Thessalonians, in the Lord, that you'll do what we've told you you must do. I don't think that's a compliment. Paul had no confidence in these people. He had rather confidence in God because Paul's banking on the simple little benediction he gives them in verse 5. He says, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. In other words, may God take your eyes off of your circumstances and put them on Jesus. Back in June, Mary and I got to spend a weekend in Chicago while kids were away at camp, and and we did a lot of Chicago kind of touristy things, including going to visit the 
the Willis Tower is what it's actually named now, but a Chicagoan will, will tell you that it's the Willis Tower spelled S-E-A-R-S, the Sears Tower, that tall tower that towers over the, the tall skyline of Chicago, and they now have on the 103rd floor the sky deck where you can go and, and look out and see the, the skyline and, and the, the, the landscape around you for miles and miles, and they have now the ledge. It's a tourist attraction. It's a, it's a plexiglass ledge that you can step out onto. It's about five feet wide, and you can step out onto it. It's a glass box 103 floors above the street. And we got in line and waited, and everybody was just giddy. You could just kind of feel everybody's excited to stand, step out on the ledge. And, and I, I was standing there thinking, well, this is not that big a deal. Nobody's ever fallen. I mean, it's, it's, it's a box. It's not going anywhere. And when it came to be our turn to step out on the ledge, I started to take a step, and I started to step back and think, I don't know about this. You can see 103 floors straight down underneath your feet. And finally, we got out there on the ledge and turned around for the obligatory picture and, and realized, you know, just don't look down. Just look at, the, look at the camera and put your eyes somewhere else. I mean, in some sense, that's what Paul is saying here. Don't look down because your circumstances are precarious. They're, they're not in your favor. But look rather at the love of God. Look at the steadfastness of Jesus by which the grace of God comes to you and brings this gospel. This gospel comes with nothing if not with grace. And when it does come, it produces something. It produces respectful diligence. Paul explains, verse 6, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Okay. Thus begins, I think, one of the most treacherous texts for the heart of successful, overachieving American consumers. All right. If you don't work, you don't eat. And all the political conservatives said, Amen. Right? I mean, that's, that's what we want to do with this. But God have mercy. Be careful. Be careful because the gospel comes with grace. There's no doubt that there's proverbial wisdom in this. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. It's reflective of Genesis 3, the, the, the story of the fall in the garden and God coming and in, in cursing the, the serpent and the man and the woman and bringing the consequences of the fall. And God explains to them, if you... Uh, by the, the sweat of your brow, you shall eat. And, and, and that's, in a sense, the result of the fall. In other words, in the fallen world, thorns and thistles are going to make your labor difficult. By the sweat of your brow shall you eat. But it's trouble for us when we emphasize the notion that the tradition that Paul had brought to the Thessalonians was to carry your own weight Oh, there's a sense of that here, but we as Americans love our bootstrap philosophy. You know, we admire someone who comes and pulls themselves up by their bootstraps. They start with nothing and they build up some financial resources and make something of themselves. We love that story, but it's a very dangerous story for the soul 
of a believer in grace. You know, of course, there are those who need this help. Paul's not talking about the sick or the elderly or those who who can't work for some particular reason. Those who need help. This is why we collect alms. We'll do this morning on the fourth Sunday of the month to help those who must have help. There are those. That's not who he's talking about here. This is different. This is a theological matter. Paul had alluded to it in his first letter to the Thessalonians, explaining that Paul and Silas and Timothy had worked day and night to avoid being a burden to their friends there. And they had urged the Thessalonians themselves to work with your hands and don't be dependent on anyone. We know the the early Christians in Jerusalem pooled all their resources together. I'm not sure if that was a good idea or not. I'm not sure I would have been there when they did that. There had to be all kinds of arguing and bickering over it. I I don't know. I'm just speculating. Paul didn't do that in Thessalonica, although he certainly exhorted them to share with one another as needs required. But some, recognizing that exhortation, took advantage of it, and he says that they were idle. Now, He does not call them lazy. That's not what he says here. That's not the word that he uses. There are other words he might use to call them lazy. The word he uses here, idle, is disorderly. They're being disordered from the proper context in which God has placed you. It's it's really, I think, a, a creation ordinance that he's referring to here. Paul's example that he and Silas and Timothy tried so hard to provide for them that they might imitate was not how to be an an industrious American capitalist. That's not what they were after. That's not what they were trying to create among the Thessalonians or any church plant. They were trying to display for their friends the order of creation that God has given you work to do and you ought not to be dependent on anyone insofar as you are able to avoid it. The theology that's at work here, Paul doesn't expressly say it, but I think it's safe to assume, is this. Jesus is coming back soon, so who cares? We can just put aside our daily responsibilities and do whatever we want to do. But the problem is that work and and labor is is not a result of the fall. It's a result of the creation. It's part of the order of creation. In Genesis 2, you read that God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it, to bring order to it. This was his calling to do. Martin Luther, the the great reformer, as I understand it, was asked once the question, what would you do, Martin, today if you knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow? We've all kind of wondered about that question, haven't you? You, Maybe you've wondered, what would I do today if I knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow? You know what, what Martin Luther said? He said, I would plant a tree. Why would he do that? Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Why would you plant a tree today? Well, I think that Luther understood something about the order of creation. Somehow, the labor of our hands will have eternal value. But the labor of our hands is a universal philosophical dilemma for us, isn't it? It's a a struggle for all of us. What am I supposed to do when I grow up? You young ones among us, 
junior high, high school, even you who are in college, you might think that question will be answered once you have a college degree in your hand. It won't. Your parents are still wondering, what am I going to do when I grow up? Parents, aren't you? I mean, how many of you are really completely content in the work that you do? We all have days where we wish we weren't doing the thing that we're doing. Now, very few. Some people are, are really content and they would do nothing else but what they're doing. But, but most of us have some discontentment in that regard. I mean, I often find myself wishing that I were a mailman. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? That's the job that I covet. I would love to be... Why? Because I would love to just walk the neighborhood and be outside and to, to meet people that I can you know, meet briefly and then move on. <laughs> it would be such a great job. I mean, I often wonder, when I grow up, I'm going to be a mailman. I just don't know when that's going to happen. I'm almost 50 years old. When am I going to grow up? But... You know, the truth is, by the sweat of your brow, you shall eat. Your labor comes through thorns and thistles. The order of creation still stands, but but some in Thessalonica refused to do it. And Paul would not stand for it because of the disrespect that it brought to the church, to the gospel, and to Jesus himself even. To the church, it brought disrespect because... Some in the Thessalonica church gave a lot. They had more to give and they gave a lot. And others simply took advantage of that. It was disrespectful to their brothers and sisters in the church. And it was disrespectful to the gospel too because outsiders watching this Christian community develop would recognize, look, some of these people, they just, they just tag along and they take advantage of others. I don't want to be a part of that. And it was disrespectful to Jesus because in the words of first century writing that circulated among the church called the Didache, such a person who simply refused the order of creation to do the work God had called them to do, such a person, quote, makes merchandise of Christ. In other words, they're taking advantage of the fact that Jesus is their product. And they can bank on that to provide food for their own table. And Paul would have nothing to do with it. Paul, if, if someone stubbornly persists in this, he says, then have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. But isn't that contrary to grace? I mean, that kind of sounds harsh, doesn't it? Paul says, have nothing to do with him so that they may be ashamed. But listen carefully. He doesn't say, shame that person. That would be contrary to grace. He says simply, let them be ashamed because grace is already established. But don't regard him as an enemy, warn him as a brother. But, but the context of his life as he's chosen it to be is shameful because he's outside the order of creation. His refusal to live in the order of creation is shame. And he must acknowledge it for his own good if he's to know lasting peace. This gospel, what it does is it does lead to lasting peace. You know, verse 16, Paul gives yet another benediction. He does that frequently here. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with 
you all. Now let me just say it to dispel a myth which you know to be not true. The Christian life is not peaceful. Right? You agree with me? Surely you do. If you don't, you should because I'm right. The Christian life is not peaceful. Every day you have struggles. Every day you have problems, parenting problems, friendship problems, job problems. You don't like your job. You have conflict with people and so on and so on. Every day you have problems. You have struggles. The Christian life is not peaceful. In fact, I think that the more you grow in Christ, the more strain your immediate circumstances can bring because you're even more sensitive to the reality of who you are and what's around you. But what does this gospel do? It leads to lasting peace. How? Through a simple benediction. Paul says, The Lord be with you all. Now, this benediction of Paul is central to the theological truth that ensures lasting peace. If the Lord is with you, then he has declared you to be worthy of being with. And that comes in only one way. Through justification by faith alone in Christ alone. That act of free grace by which God declares you to be righteous only because of the righteousness of Jesus credited to you. Horatius Bonner was a Scottish minister and writer back in the 1800s, and he wrote a couple of short books. They're very helpful theological books. One of them is on the doctrine of justification. It's not really long. It's like 80 pages long. Very well worth the read. And its title says everything. God's way of peace. And then he spends the whole book explaining the doctrine of justification by faith. And at one point, this is what he says. He says, what God expects of you is satisfaction with Jesus and his work, not satisfaction with your own faith. So, I'm satisfied with Christ, you say. Good. Then you are a believing man. You are a believing woman. What more do you wish? And it's that simple. It's really that simple. Justification by faith is the means of peace with God. Moments ago, earlier in our worship service, you heard Psalm 145 read to you. In that psalmist, David, says, makes this statement. He says, One generation shall commend your works, O Lord, to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. In other words, one generation shall turn the eyes of the next generation upon you. He says, and this is what Paul had done among the Thessalonians. It's what he did among all the churches. This is the tradition that they had received in a sense. Turn your eyes to Jesus and trust in God's mighty acts on your behalf. Remember Paul's story. You know, he was the Hebrew of Hebrews, a young theologian. He knew it all. He was a self-justifier during Jesus' day. He stood and watched the stoning of Stephen, one of the early disciples. And Luke writes in the book of Acts, Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And then Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, and Saul began to preach a different gospel. 
he began to preach Jesus and to spend time with the disciples in Jerusalem, you have to wonder what their conversations were like as they talked. And, and Paul learned and heard more about this noble Galilean that he knew of and whose death he had reveled in. He began to hear the stories of healing power and calming storms and rebuking of demons and, and broken being fixed and wounded being healed. And Paul began to proclaim Jesus as the Messiah, God come down, the justifier to be with us. Saul, the self-justifier, had no peace. He was out to destroy the church. But Paul, the apostle, did have peace. You know, what this gospel does is it takes broken people in whom no confidence can be had. You and me, we're among them, right? The, the disorderly moochers who look for peace in false messiahs, because we're all tempted to do it every day. The false messiah presents himself to us in so many forms. And this gospel takes them and reclaims them for the one who made them. That's why we're going to go to the book of Revelation to, to see the, the overarching picture that God paints for us there. Steve Brown, some of you have heard Steve Brown on the radio. He's a, a Presbyterian pastor and teacher with a radio ministry and the deepest, boomingest voice I've ever heard in my life. Have you ever heard Steve Brown preach or teach? I heard him tell a story once of an old friend of his who he would have breakfast with frequently. They're both old and would joke with each other about how, you know, they're not far from going to meet Jesus. And, and his friend had had breakfast recently with an old pastor, a friend of his, and had asked him the same question that Steve and his friend would ask, are you ready to die this week? And the answer was always, no, I'm not ready to die yet. But his friend's pastor friend said, no, I'm not ready to die, but here's what I'm looking forward to, though, when I do. I'm looking forward to the last day when Jesus takes his bride, the church, by her disorderly, scruffy neck, almost like a, like a shaggy, mangy dog, and lifts her up and holds her in the face of Satan and says to him this, This is all I had. This is all I had, Satan, and still I kicked your behind. What an irreverent summary of the book of Revelation. That's what the book of Revelation is about. I mean, John probably could have just written that story and called it an end. That's what the book of Revelation is about. And it's an irreverent summary of what this gospel does. It comes by faithful grace because the scruffy ones who receive it have nothing to offer in return. And it gives them, even in their disordered confusion, a respectful diligence to set about kingdom work. And it leads them then to peace by means of justification, by faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what this gospel does. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. O oh Lord, we pray that you would enable our hearts to believe this gospel. Help us, Father, to trust that you are the one who is at work, that your word does go forward, it speeds ahead, 
to our hearts, to our church, to the church at large, and does its work, even as we, scruffy and disordered as we are, don't know what to do with it ourselves. Father, we pray that you would bring glory to yourself in and through your church, even in and through this church on this day as your gospel works. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.